Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. I want to welcome everybody into my home for Gospel Saving Church here in McKinney, Texas. And I want to welcome everybody coming from online, SoundCloud, and all over the world. God bless you and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's a pleasure to have you out there. And I know you're listening to me. So praise be to God. Thank you for all my faithful supporters out there. Um, We're going to be today in Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 56. If you guys want to get there while I'm going through my thoughts from last week's message, again, Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 56. But first, my thoughts from last week's message, the extreme love of Christ, part two. I say, he, Jesus Christ, gave all of himself for us and still reached out to us and his persecutors in love. While he was in terrible and wretched pain, suffering that way for six hours total on the cross until he died, even though we put him there by our sin. Is there anyone out there that would disagree with me on that fact, on those points? I sure hope not. Because if so, we need to have a long, long talk. Those points are biblically irrefutable, and the proof of them is in Scripture all over the place. So since he's done all this to prove his love for us in order to save us from our sins, Bible says, he says, he requires all of us in return. Listen to what he says in Matthew 16, verse 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's the simple translation on what he just said. Unless we lose our lives to him or fully submit slash surrender our lives to him, or you could say fully give all of ourselves to him, we can't go to heaven and be saved from our sins. Is God mean or cruel or unjust for making the way of salvation in Christ this way? Absolutely not. Let me tell you why. You see, he had to make salvation in Christ this way because the Bible says that he gave us all our free will. See, the Bible says that God gave us free will and we can live for and serve anyone and anything that we want to. God gave us that free will. You see, he didn't want robots. God could have made robots. God could have made people to do exactly what he wanted to do and they would have no free choice. And, you know, if God said jump, he'd say how high. And we could have been made that way, but we're not made that way. We're made with free will. We're made with the ability to serve and worship whomever we want to. And naturally, the Bible says, and I've seen in my own life, people, and even with myself before I knew Christ, we choose to worship and live for ourselves and not for God, which makes us, the Bible says, the lords of our own lives. So the reason God requires our total surrender to Christ for salvation is because God will not force us to live for him. God will not force us to be saved. God will not force us to walk with him. Because if he did, he could have made robots in the very beginning, and and none of this would have ever even needed to happen. So in order for us to be saved from our sins, we must willfully transfer the lordship that we have of our own lives and we must give it to God willfully and choose to live for him. And to do that, God says that we need to choose to willfully live for him and give ourselves to him and choose to willfully live for him as he willfully chose to live for us. And so that's why I've said it before, and that's why I'll say it again. He gave all of himself for us. He wants all of us in return. Matthew 16, 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He willfully gave all of himself for us, and he requires for salvation for us to give ourselves willfully, all of ourselves, unto him in order for us to be saved. The Bible says that God wants every person on the face of the planet to be saved, but he can't do it unless we give him the legal right to ourselves 
by willfully giving or surrendering the lordship of our lives to him. So today, if, you, if you're sitting out there, if you're listening from across the world, wherever you are, if you examine your life and you're really honest with yourself, because that's what's the key. God knows the truth. But if you're out there and you're listening and you're really honest with yourself, you got to ask yourself, is Jesus really my Lord? Is he really the one that makes the decisions in my life? Is he really the one I live for or do I live for myself? Do I make the decisions that I make because, you know, he is my Lord? Do I make decisions, biblical decisions? Or do I just make my decisions because I just make them because they're on me and I run my life? Because if you do, if you're the one that runs your life, if you're the one that makes the decisions in your life, then God is not your Lord and Jesus is not your Savior and you're not really saved. And so if you want to be saved, you must repent, the Bible says, and turn to him and submit your life to him and give him the reins and the control of your life. God showed us so much extreme love and sacrifice by his death on the cross and by his willful choice to come and give up his life to pay for our sins. And in return, he requires, and the Bible demands because of sin, that we that he get all of us in return. And he even deserves it as well because he gave all of himself for us. So, praise be to God. Um, we're going to get on to our main message. Our title of our main message is Come Behind the Veil and Meet with God. Come behind the veil and meet with God. Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 56. And would you guys join me in a word of prayer before we get into our main message so that way we can have God prepare our hearts for what we hear today. If you want to join me, please. Thank you so much, dear God. As we look at this message, come behind the veil and meet with you. Lord, thank you so much for this words that you've given me this week and last week. And Lord, thank you so much for your Bible, your word as a whole, Lord. We know it's the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path, Lord. We know that without it, Lord, we live in darkness. And with it, we can have spiritual light. And God, so I pray that today as we listen to coming behind the veil to meet with you, Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that we'd listen intently to what you have to tell us and help us to understand the important things of salvation, Lord. For Lord, that is, Lord, we can learn and study on anything we want in this life. We have that right. We have that choice. But Lord, I pray today and from, the, and from today on to the forever, Lord, we would choose to make the study of salvation and your word and, and your truths, Lord, a top priority in our lives. Please, dear God, I pray that we'd make the study of you and the listening and following of you a top priority in our lives. So help us start today, Lord God, by hearing this message and help us to know and learn how we can come behind the veil and meet with you and bless our hearts, Lord God, with your presence and with your words today. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Praise God. So we close with last week, if you remember, we close with verse 50. Now, although that's not in our topic of scripture, it's one verse up from where we are. I'm going to read it over quickly just so we get kind of where we're at. Verse 50, Matthew chapter 27 says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This, of course, was his final act of extreme love that he showed us while alive in his fleshly, earthly body. This was the final one. He, he, did, he did a lot of acts of love and extreme love for us while he was alive, but this was, of course, his final act of extreme love that he did for us in his earthly body. Here we read that he yields up his spirit, or simply, if you want to put it in our terms today, he simply dies, proving his love for us. But just because his spirit and his soul have departed from his body doesn't mean that the story is over. Hallelujah. Look at what happens now that he has poured out his soul unto death for our sins upon the cross willfully because of his extreme love for you. Look at verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Wow. The veil of the temple 
tears into, and creation itself literally responds with an earth-shattering display as the rocks split. Could you imagine? This temple, it was the Temple of Solomon. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But the veil tears, which means the, the concrete and the, the brick and the stone of the, of the temple tear. It rips, it breaks, the earthquake cracks, and the stones shatter. All because they respond to Christ's death. Reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 19. Remember what he said. They come to him after he had just done a whole bunch of miracles. And, and because he did these miracles, people are coming to him and they're, they've got these palm leaves and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And remember, the religious leaders come to Jesus, Luke 19, and they say, Jesus, you better stop these people. That's blasphemy. That's terrible. Well, you can't have him saying that. And Jesus says to them, oh, if they were to stop the rocks would cry out. Well, here we see the rocks speak and cry out by splitting in two at the event of Christ's death. But there's more here than just the powerful speech of the rocks. There's more here, you could say, than meets the eye. I understand creation and why it did what it did. Because I do believe that the rocks literally would have cried out in some way. Maybe it wouldn't have been speech that we would have understood. But I believe that when Christ said the rocks would cry out if the people stopped yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, I believe that the rocks would have truly, literally cried out in some way. Well, here we actually see that they did. And I understand why they did. Their creator just died. The one that made them from the foundation of the planet Earth, God formed those rocks. Every rock that's still here today, God made at the beginning of creation. Through Jesus Christ is what the Bible says. So I understand the rocks splitting in two. And they were excited. Wow, our, 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 our master's dead. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. Bam, crack. Earthquake, big earthquake. The whole earth responds to Christ's death. But why the veil? Why the veil in the temple? Why did it tear in two? Well, let's talk on it. You see, when I'm, you'll see when I'm done, but first, I want you to know this. We're going to talk about the veil of the temple being torn in two, and we're going to talk about it, why it was torn in two, and we're going to talk on its significance. But before we do, before we talk on why this was significant, and why this was huge, and why it was torn in two, I'm going to start to tell you a little bit about the veil and, and what significance it had and you know where it kind of came from. Where, what was its origin? I mean, what is this veil of the temple of God? What, what was it? Where did it start? Uh, what, what does the Bible have to say on it? Well, to start with, the veil. The veil of God. The veil was something that God had commanded the children of Israel back when they were wandering in the desert for 40 years with Moses as their leader. And they had this thing called the tabernacle of God. Now, if you guys want to look, I've, I've made a couple diagrams today, a couple pictures. And we have picture one and picture two. And if you're coming from online, you should have a link there in SoundCloud or you can go to gospelsavingchurch.com and you can look online. And I've got these pictures listed on the website under this title for this sermon. You can click on that and you'll see these pictures that will be right there underneath the sermon. So we have picture one and this is where the veil originated. We have the tabernacle of God. This is what they call, this is what God had the Israelites set up as a place to meet God back in the Old Testament. This is way before Christ, thousands of years. God had just delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, and God had them make this, what he called the tabernacle, uh, the tabernacle of meeting. In this tabernacle of meeting, if you'll notice, you have the first place there to the right, and you see the table of showbread, the holy place, the lampstand, altar of incense, and then you see the veil. Well, first in the beginning there, we have the holy place. And they could come in there and they could kind of, you know, not meet with God, but they could do all these little things that God had given them in their religion to do. And then there was this veil here. Well, this is the same veil we're talking about today, the veil that tore in two from top to bottom. And behind this veil, we have the most holy place, or the, and we have the Ark of the Covenant, and we also had God's mercy seat. Now, this is where God's mercy seat, this is where God used to meet with Moses literally face to face. Inside the tabernacle of meeting, there was the holy place referred to here in picture one, and then a veil. And then inside the veil, according to Leviticus uh, 
according to Leviticus 16, uh, 16, this here on the paper you see most holy place, but actually the original name of it was the holy place inside the veil. Or as we see on our picture, the most holy place. And we see there the Ark of the Covenant. We also see there was God's mercy seat. And this is where the veil got its start. The same veil that we're reading about today, different location. We'll talk on that a little bit. That's picture two. We'll get to it in a little bit. But this is where the veil got its start. As I said, the veil, the priest would go behind this veil and he would meet with God. The Bible says and meet with Moses literally face to face as a man would meet with a friend. Not obviously, uh, you know, they would see God's face, but they would speak with God as maybe, you, you know, you think about if you had a phone conversation and you were intimately close and you heard somebody's voice behind this, the phone. Well, you would, they would hear God's voice and see this smoke and they would hear God and they'd speak with him. The Bible uses the analogy as a friend speaks with a friend face to face, but we know that they couldn't see God's face. Leviticus tell, uh, Leviticus chapter 16 tells us that under the old covenant, this was the only way that God could be approached and spoken with directly. And at that, okay, we had to go, the priest or Moses, only the high priest or Moses could go behind this veil and speak with God, believe it or not, only once a year. Uh, Hebrews 9, 7 tells us that. Hebrews 9, 7 tells us, but into the second part, the Holy of Holies are behind the veils. I, I put that in there. The high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So the priest or Moses could only go in once a year and they could only go in once a year behind the veil to the Holy of Holies to speak with God once a year to speak with him face to face, and at that only with the blood of bulls and goats and rams to cover them so that they literally did not die. Leviticus 16 tells us without that precious blood that covered them from their sins and the sins of the congregation, if they went into the Holy Holies to meet with God, they would literally die. Okay, So that's the history of the veil, picture one. The same veil that we're reading about here today, we're going to read about where it is now here in a little bit. That's the history and its importance in the tabernacle meeting where it was located in the very beginning. Fast forward to Jesus' day, okay? Because that's where we are now. In the time Jesus lived in the flesh, there was no more standalone structure called the tabernacle meeting. That was all gone. God had commanded throughout the years, he said, okay, I want you to build me a temple now. And now after you build me a temple, I want you to take the tabernacle meeting and I want you to put it inside the temple. And so in Jesus' day, because the, some temples had been destroyed, and so now in Jesus' day, this king, Herod, had actually built a temple called Herod's Temple. And that's actually picture two, if you want to look at picture two. And then we'll see where the veil was in Jesus' day. We have picture two, Herod's Temple. And the tabernacle was put inside the temple of God. And the same things that we saw there in picture one all are there now in picture two, but they're inside this humongous structure called Solomon's Temple. So no standalone tabernacle, but at that time, God had directed the Jews to put this tabernacle spoken of in Leviticus inside the temple, picture two. As you see, picture two, we have the seven steps going up, another eight steps in the beginning and to your right. We have the bronze altar. That's where they would sacrifice their uh, all their offerings in, in, you know, uh, for, the, for the sin of the people. We have the bronze sea. That's where they would wash themselves in, the, in this holy water. Then we go in through this court and we see here, look here, the holy place, tabernacle of showbread and the altar of incense. This is where they'd offer incense as an altar. And then the, uh, the, the place where they put the showbread was there, just like in the tabernacle. And then we have the veil again, if you're looking at the picture. And then behind the veil, we have the ark. And that's, again, there, the Holy of Holies. Notice the, the tabernacle of meeting is no, long, no longer standalone, but it's inside Solomon's temple. And the same rules still applied, by the way. The same rules still applied to this temple as they did to the original ark of the, or as the, to the original tabernacle of meeting. People, the priests or the high priests at this point now, because Moses is no longer there, had to sacrifice bulls and goats and rams and so on and so forth, and, and they could only go in behind this veil once a year. Same thing. It still existed, the tabernacle of media, but it existed inside this huge temple, which we read about in Matthew chapter 27, uh, Solomon, or Herod's temple, excuse me. And that's why we read in Matthew 27, 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two. 
No longer the veil of their tabernacle, but now the veil of the temple. This huge veil hung inside the temple. Imagine now what kind of earthquake this took to break this veil, to tear this veil. This veil, of course, was only cloth or, or, or linen or some type of linen or some type of like uh, velvet or something like that. It was some type of fabric. But mind you, it hung between these huge concrete walls of this temple. And Herod's temple was humongous solid, built with huge rocks and huge stones that were quarried in a quarry and brought to the temple. So when we read about that this veil tore in two, you think of just the, just the fabric. But think about the fabric's not going to rip unless the walls ripped. So when you're thinking about the power of the tearing of the veil in two and this earthquake, we're not talking about uh, any old cheap you know, show trick here like a, like a, like a little tremor. We're talking about a massive, massive earthquake that caused this veil to be torn in two. So, uh, the veil of the temple, torn in two, verse 51. Why did the veil tear in two inside the temple? And why was this significant? Now that we've got our backdrop, now that we've got our understanding of the veil, why did it have to happen? Why does the Bible say that that needed to happen? Well, we'll start with this, a little, a little understanding. Jesus said in Luke twenty two twenty, he said, likewise, he also took the cup after supper, during the last supper, during the communion. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. You see, God had to bring in a new covenant because the old covenant was going on out. The covenant of the bulls and the goats and the rams, God says, ending. I'm going to make a new covenant, but it's going to be in my servant's blood. It's going to be in my son's blood. And Jesus said it, Luke 22, 20. And he said, and this has to happen. Well, think about this. If we have something new coming in and we have something old coming out, what has to happen in order for something new to come in and something old to go out? Well, the old has to be done away with, right? The old, then, you could say, if we're going to be replacing the old with the new, we can just discard the old. The old's not important anymore. The old, you could say, gets thrown away, right, to make room for the new. Think about when you get furniture in your house. If you're getting new furniture in your house, and, and I'm not trying to compare God's tabernacle or holy of holies to new furniture in your house, but if you're getting new furniture in your house and your old furniture's all wore out, what do you do? You either donate it or you throw it away, depending on how bad it is. But either way, you remove it from your house to put the new furniture in your home. Well, here, God was making a new covenant, and he had to replace the old covenant with the new covenant. So the old covenant needed to be tossed out or thrown away. So now think about it. Why would the veil of God's old covenant or the old way of people coming to God have broken into after Christ's death? And by his death, he brought a new covenant in his blood. Well, think about it. The Bible says God was doing away with the old way of the way people came to him. And he was making a new way, Luke 22, 20. The new covenant, or you could say the new way that you or me will come to God, Jesus said, in my blood. So the veil tearing in two signified the destruction of the old covenant and the destruction of that way people used to be able to come to God. So, no more holy of holies just for the priests only once a year, only after this poor guy sacrifices dozens of animals to be able to be clean enough and covered in his sin enough in order to come before God so that he's not destroyed. Oh, no, 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 no. The veil tearing in two signified Jesus' death for our sins making it possible for, possible for any and all people who come through him and his sacrifice for us to enter the Holy Holy spiritually, to be able to speak with God as friends face-to-face spiritually whenever we want to, not just once a year. Hallelujah. How about that? Praise be to God. No more Holy of Holies. No more veil. No more uh, mercy seat. No more if, if we see this, then we're going to die. No, no. Now we have Christ's death, and he 
is the one and his flesh became the veil by which we could step through and approach God face to face. But don't just take my word for it. If you want to go to or you can listen along to Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 23, the writer of Hebrews describes the same thing as well. He says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, that's Christ, let us draw near, you could say to God, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We were just talking about that today before service, how the blood of Christ washes us clean and washes our sins away. Amen. Thanks be to God. Christ's death here was truly monumentally so significant to how we live today and all the way in which God said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm getting rid of the old and I'm bringing the new. And it literally and historically changed the way that all humanity came to have a relationship with God Almighty through his son, Jesus Christ. Before Christ's death, this is how you can look at it, spiritual cleanness or cleanliness came by blood of bulls and goats and rams. They had to sacrifice bulls and goats and rams so that they could be clean enough that God would not look on their sin and destroy them. Again, in case you didn't know, this was just a covering. Bible says that their sins were not gone, but the bulls and goats and rams' blood would just cover their sins. After Christ's death, spiritual cleanliness comes by, because I say that as in the current, because it's still today, comes by Jesus Christ's death and sacrifice for our sins, and us coming under that through repentance and faith. No more sacrificing bulls and goats and rams. No more sacrificing Jesus Christ every week, week after week after week. He did it once, the Bible says, and once for all. And by his blood, through his flesh, we can now enter the Holy of Holies and meet God literally, spiritually, face to face. That's powerful. Amen. That is powerful. Amen. Praise God for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and just how it changed the way that all of us could come to God. So now, think about this. If you're in Christ and come to God in Jesus Christ's name, whenever you pray to God, you can imagine perfectly, just mentally, because it's true, because we just read it's true, you can imagine in your mind that you're standing right before God's throne. Think about it. Anytime you come in Jesus Christ's name to God, you close your eyes, you can think about you being at the foot of God's holy throne, before the throne of the Most High God. And If you come in Jesus Christ's name, you won't be destroyed. And if you come in Jesus Christ's name, God sits there and he listens to your prayers and he looks upon you as you're praying. Tell me that's not powerful. That means the world to me. That means the world to me. Before Christ, we're separated. Before Christ, we can pray to God all we want. And the Bible says, unless you're in Christ or coming and on the way, God doesn't hear you. After Christ, the Bible says you get to go behind the Holy, Holy Spiritual and stand or sit or kneel or, or whatever you're doing before the throne of the God of all the universe. Just think about it. Wow. We could stop there, but we can't stop there because we got to do some more scripture. What does Matthew, Matthew doesn't stop there. We're not going to stop there. Matthew doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell us a little bit about what happens on a little later. And even gives us a glimpse of the power of Christ's resurrection. Look at verses 52 and 53. Bible says, After this happened, And the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and they appeared to many. Now look carefully here. This is something that has gotten some people, I'm, I'm sure. This is two different events that Matthew is talking about here. Matthew is not just describing one event. Matthew just doesn't say, oh, this all happened right when Christ died. No, look carefully. 
Verse 52, he says, after the death of Christ, there was a great earthquake. We've already talked about how great that earthquake was. The graves were opened, graves were opened and the saints were raised. Verse 53 says, after the resurrection, people actually, the saints actually came walking out of their graves and into the city where the people were. Verse, here's something to help you see it if you don't understand it. Verse 52. After the de- after Christ's death, the earthquake made made the graves literally open up. You know, think about it. The ground is opening. I can see that. Earthquake happens, ground open, it happens still today, right? And let's say the saints now that are in the, the, the ground, which are these are the people that believed in Christ before, you know, he ever came, like the saints of the Old Testament, their batteries batteries excuse me, their bodies were literally kind of lifted up out of the graves. I mean, that that happens with an earthquake. A bad enough earthquake will split the ground, graves will be open, coffins will be split open, and so the, the saints were actually like kind of thrown out of their coffins a little bit. That's verse 52. But then verse 53 says that after Christ's resurrection, the saints only, as I said, those who believed in Christ before he ever came, actually came out of those graves... And they walked around in Jerusalem talking to people. Or maybe they weren't talking to people, but they were walking around. People were seeing this miracle, and they were like, Wow! Think of the power that there was between Christ's death and his resurrection. The bodies kind of lifted up out of the graves was a result of the earthquake. And the saints literally coming out of the graves and walking around was because of another monumental, powerful thing that happened after Christ resurrected. What was it? Well, after Christ resurrected, this happened because Christ went and preached to those who died that were in hell, the Bible says. And they got to go to heaven for the first time when he resurrected. Does that sound crazy to you? It should. Well, Jesus spoke about this journey he was going to take back in Matthew 12, 40. He said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What was he doing while he was there? What was he doing when the Bible says he said, I'm going to go to the heart of the earth? Because heart of the earth is not a grave. That's only six feet deep. And we know that Jesus wasn't even buried six feet deep. We know that we're going to read next week. He was put in a tomb that was just freshly hewn. That tomb was only just right right below the surface of the earth. That wasn't six feet down. So what did Jesus mean? I went to the heart of the earth. Well, 1 Peter tells us, 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, For Christ also suffered once for sins, as I've already mentioned, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So you see, after Christ died, his soul and his spirit went to hell for three days and three nights where he preached to those who had been there, who had been waiting on the promise before he ever came. Guys like Moses, guys like Abraham, guys like Jacob, who those guys who, although they had their belief in God, the Bible says that before Christ came, there was no way for their souls to go to heaven. God had given them another provision called Abraham's bosom. And that place was kind of like a temporary place where it was a part of hell. They weren't suffering, but they were still there, but they weren't allowed to go to heaven yet, the Bible says. But then after Christ came, and after he resurrected, after he went to hell and preached to them for three days, they actually rose up their spirits and their souls, got to go to heaven and be at peace with God forever. I wonder how powerful of the time this must have been. I wonder if, back to Christ's death, how powerful, how monumentally powerful it actually was for those that were standing there and and looking on to what happened. Was what happened to him powerfully monumental enough to cause those that, that were looking on to believe in him as the Christ or the Jewish Messiah. I mean, think about it. There were all kinds of people looking on. Do you think that all that this had happened, the rock splitting open, the temple tearing down, the temple cracked, the veil was torn, you know, then we see the earthquake and the bodies of these people kind of falling out of their graves or coming out of the ground, you know, kind of. You think this was powerful enough to make those that were looking on believe? Well, look at verse 54. Absolutely it was. So when the centurion and those with him, who were they? We'll go back to verse 36 in Matthew chapter 27. Look at this. Who, 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 who was the centurion and those with him sitting in front of the cross at the, grave, at, the, at the cross of Christ? Back to Matthew 27, 36. Sitting down, they kept watch over him. And they put over his head in the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. This was 
the, the verse 35, we go back to, then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet. These were the hardened, murderous Roman guard, Roman soldiers that were sitting there at Christ's cross watching him die, dividing his clothes, casting lots for his clothes. These hardened, murderous Roman guards saw this, and verse 54 just told us, so when the centurion and those who were with him were guarding him, uh, regarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. So yes, those looking on, this was even a powerfully monumental moment to make them believe that this was literally God's only son. They, uh, they had probably visited hundreds, if not thousands, of executions. They actually put people, hundreds and thousands of people, to death all the time. But never once did they see the ground break open. Bodies of people flying out. The temple being broken into the temple with this earthquake and the veil tearing into. Not one time did they ever see this kind of thing happen. How absolutely powerful of a time was this? Well, think about it. The Son of God, the Creator of all, steps into humanity. He lays down His life for those whom He created, and He makes or creates, or you could say opens a new way to God, to all those who are interested in God, and all those, everybody really, but those that are going to partake of it are those who are interested. So he makes this new way to God. Whereas for that way was closed off. An intimate, personal relationship with God was closed off. Jesus Christ makes an intimate, personal relationship with God available to all who care about having a relationship with Him. Think of how powerful that is. And of course, that power went into the ground. It went into the temple. It went into the Roman soldiers. These hardened murderers that were watching, and they saw it and they said, Truly, this was the Son of God. How does Matthew decide to close this monumentally powerful section of Scripture? Look at verses 55 and 56, our last two for the day. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, which was Jesus' mother, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Matthew goes on to tell us about some onlookers, about some people who were there looking on, and, and you know they were witnesses. He tells us about their witness of this happening. Why does he do this? Why does he close this monumentally powerful section of Scripture with this, you know, basics of who was there looking on. I think, personally, it's because so that people would know, hey, there were witnesses that saw this. Hey, there were the Roman guard that were sitting there. There were the Mary, the, Jesus' mother, those that followed him. These guys were all there. And you know what? They saw it all. So, hey, when anybody's reading this gospel, they could go back to these ladies and say, tell us what you saw. They could go, I'm sure these Roman guards, I'm sure that their lives were changed. Nobody has an encounter with God like these Roman soldiers did. Nobody has an encounter with God and Christ like like these Marys did. And their lives are not changed. Nobody today, like myself, who's had an encounter with God stays the same. It's impossible. You can't do it. The Bible says that when God comes, His presence is so overwhelming and it's so amazing. God changed me. By his presence coming to me 15, 16 years ago, and the same thing happened to them. Today, we covered the second most powerful and important section of Scripture in all the Bible. The Bible says that there were three monumental things that happened in all the world's creation that were the three most powerful things ever. We have Christ's birth, number one. We have the creator of the universe being put in the womb of a woman and being birthed so that he could come and, and, and walk amongst human beings and show us the way to God. That was number one. Number two was Christ's death. We read about the power that we just saw there. Look at the power that was released when Christ died. Amazing. 
powerful, monumental moment that we had here. And then we had the resurrection of Christ. Matthew just glimpsed at that. He just kind of said, it, hey, this is just a little bit of what happens after Christ's resurrection. And we know, the Bible goes on to tell us, as we're going to read in Matthew and the rest of the Gospels, we know that after his resurrection, he came and he showed himself to 500 people all at once, and he ate by the sea with his disciples, and, and, and you know, he did a lot of amazing things. He actually came for 40 days after he resurrected. So this, is, this was just the beginning, the saints walking out and walking amongst the people in Jerusalem. So these three, these three events were the three most powerful events in all of creation that have ever happened since creation was has come today in matthew's recording of the death of christ and is touching on a little bit about what happened when jesus was resurrected god gave us a lot to think about there was a lot to think about in this section of scripture i would have to say for me though for me the most powerful thing that we touched on today was the fact that jesus christ came and made a new way to God. That he opened up a way which was closed for thousands of years. Think about it. Jesus opened the door. He split open the Old Testament veil, the Old Covenant veil. And he made a new and living way through the veil which was his flesh for us to come to Christ. And that now today, think of this, think of this. This has impacted me more than anything that's impacted me in a long time. Anyone today, whether man, woman, boy, or girl, think of it, white, black, yellow, or green, purple, blue, any color, whatever color you are, whatever gender, whatever race, whatever age, anyone can now come and speak with God Almighty to have an intimate relationship with Him as many times a day and as much as we would like to at any time, whenever and wherever, whether you're in your bed, whether you're in your car, whether you're at your job or or whether you're at the grocery store. Now, anytime, anywhere, whoever you are, wherever you're from, any country, any language, any tribe, anywhere, people can now come to seek the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, and speak with him face to face as Moses did. This has touched me more than any section of scripture has in a long, long, long time. And we can know, think of it, that as we pray In Christ Jesus' name, as long as we're coming through his sacrifice to come to God, we literally are kneeling or standing or sitting before the Holy One, before the throne of the majesty on high. God Almighty, the creator of all things, the one whom the Bible says holds the whole earth in the palm of his hands and holds all creation in the span of his hand we can now go and we can sit right before him as he sits there and he listens to us as he listens to us not as he just it goes over his head or there's no wall or there's no veil or there's no 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 nothing we're right there before him this truth and the refreshment of it for me this week has impacted me monumentally forever. And this new way, and that, this new way, think of it, all came to be because God unselfishly, unselfishly, lovingly allowed His only Son, Jesus Christ, to be crucified on a horrible cross for our sins. When I wrote up this sermon, and God refreshed my mind with this truth, it changed again the way I prayed. I had known this for a long time. God had taught me this a long time ago. But as life keeps coming at you, and things keep coming on you, and things just happen, we forget. Well, I had forgotten just how important it was 
what Christ did on that cross and the connection that what he did on the cross and his death and resurrection made for me coming to God and you coming to God too. God is so good and he cares for you and me and his one and only desire for you if you're not walking with him, is that you come and walk with him in an intimate and personal way. He made the way through the new veil, which is the flesh of Christ, through the death of his only son, Jesus Christ. And now he's calling out to you and waiting for you to embrace it and step through this veil, which is Christ, And come into the holy place behind the veil, Leviticus 16, to speak with him face to face. And he did that for us. He did that for us. Making a way for us to come and intimately talk with God. I don't know about you. To me... Anyone that would desire to have an intimate relationship with me with as screwed up as I am, they've got my attention. They've got my attention. And to me, God is not just anyone, but the man. And he's the main and most important one in all of existence. And to think that the most important one, the most important being in all existence would desire an intimate personal relationship with me even though I'm all screwed up and even make the way for that to happen is beyond me and it's beyond humbling to me that God would do that for me. The screwed up one that I am. That God would go out of his way And make this all happen for me and for you. In fact, this truth for me, as I've thought about throughout the years, when God will bring it back up into my heart, has made me cry. When I really focus on it, I just start to cry. God, I can talk to you. Lord, I can sit before you. I'm I'm yours. I'm sitting before your throne. I'm just think of it. So I don't know about where you're at with God and Christ, but I know where they want you to be with them. Scripture tells me, our scripture just told me today, Christ just made a way. I know where they want you, I want, I know where they want you to be with them. They want you to be intimately up close and personal with them. And this, ladies and gentlemen, should be very humbling. To you, because we're all screwed up, and all of us have our problems, and we know each and every one of us the problems that we have. We know our sin, we know the way that we've blown it in the past, and yet Christ had us on his mind while he was staying on the cross purposely because he could have come down at any time. We talked about that before, and the fact of why he knew he was up there to make a way, a connection, to bring you and me into connection with God through his death should be humbling to you. It should humble you as well. So as when I started the sermon, I talked on how this step needed to be done. I'll close with that same word from Jesus again. Jesus said, Matthew 16, 25, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for my sake will find it. Simple translation. Unless we lose our lives to Christ, unless we fully submit our lives or surrender our lives to Christ, or give ourselves fully to him, we can't go to heaven and we can't be saved. Because you see, the Bible says Christ is the only one that made this way to God. Buddha can't do it for you. Muhammad can't do it for you. Your best friend can't do it for you. The Hindu gods can't do it for you. Because only Christ tore that veil and made a new and living covenant through his flesh, through his death and through his resurrection for you to be able to come to God. Nobody else. Only him. So unless we turn to him 
and repent from our sins and fully put our lives in his hands and let him have control, then we cannot be saved. God did everything to make the way for you and me to come to him. Will you come now, he wants to know, and partake of the amazing life and relationship that God has waiting for you through the veil of Christ where all may enter and come and now and draw near to God. All may come. It's up to you, God says. It's up to all of us. God won't force us, but he sure does desire for you and me to come and to join him. In fact, God pleads with you through me. Please, come to me now. You know what I did for you. Come to me now. I've paved the way. Just get on the path. So if you're not there, God's asking you, will you come today? Will you come right now? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you made this new way. Thank you so much, Lord God. Lord, we didn't make this way. You made the new way. You made the way behind the veil. You tore the veil, the old veil in two, making a new veil in the flesh of Christ. So that, you did that solely that we could come. Anybody could come to you and have a personal relationship with you. Anybody could come and enter behind the veil that is Christ through belief and faith and repentance. And we could stand before you and not be destroyed because his blood and his sacrifice has washed us clean. And Lord, you did that because you love us. Lord, I've never known this kind of love except for from you. So I pray, dear God, for everybody and anybody listening out there, that Lord, that they would be as, as humbled as I was when I was making up this sermon, Lord, for you, that you were giving me all this information. I pray that they'd be as humbled as I was this whole week. And then, Lord, they'd be so humbled that they would just surrender now even new afresh today. And if they'd never surrendered, Lord God, I pray that they'd fall on their knees even today and cry out to you and say, Lord, I need you. If you did all this just to have a relationship with me, God, then I, you're worth knowing. Because, <laughs> Lord, as I said earlier, we're all screwed up. And anybody that would want and care about me, even though I'm all screwed up, you've got my attention. And I pray, dear God, for those out there. I pray now, dear God, that you would have their attention too. And that they would come and come through the veil, which is Christ, and come and kneel before you and know that you're right there and just surrender before you and say, I need you. I need you. Thank you for all that you've done, Lord, and all that you continue to do. We love you and we praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God, everyone. It's Pastor Ed here. and Thank you so much for listening to the message. It's my prayer that you were encouraged and challenged with what you heard today to be a doer of God's word and not a hearer only. Because your life will soon be passed and only what you've done for Jesus Christ will last. If you live in the Dallas, Texas area, we want to invite you to come to our little house church here in McKinney, Texas. Sunday mornings, our service is at 1015, and the directions can be found on our website. Also, if you have any prayer requests or questions, or maybe you believe God has called you to support this church financially, please go to gospelsavingchurch.com and click on the appropriate links. I would love to hear from you personally. God loves you very much. Please love Him back by the way you live your life. God bless you, and have a wonderful day.